people a week ago. We did that two weeks ago. Last week was a different week, and I've lost track of that, so I apologize. But for those of us in Christ, we know we are heaven-bound. But there's a whole world out there that does not yet know either who Jesus is or why on earth we should follow him and make him Lord of our life. And they're at that big English word we call the precipice. They're coming to the fork in the road where a decision has to be made of what am I going to do with my life? And they're asking themselves questions all the time. And we all ask questions like this of, uh, what do I want from life? What do I want out of the days I have left here on this earth? And what if this isn't all there is? A famous reporter uh, once embarked on the journey. He was tired of religious people telling him about Jesus. That's the short answer. There was much more to it. So he set out as a reporter to disprove Jesus Christ, that he couldn't be who he said he was. And he decided to come see what all the fuss was about. And in the process, the deeper he got, the more people he interviewed, the more he studied, the more evidence that surrounded him, the more he came to the only logical conclusion he could that Jesus Christ is indeed exactly who he says he is, that he says he is, and that he is worthy of following, that he is worthy of all of our adoration, of all of our praise, and that he is the only one that can save us and give us eternal life and give us access to God the Father through himself and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lee Strobel did that, and his entire life was changed from one of being a skeptic to one that's inviting people to come see, come use your brain and consider who you might find at the other side. Last week, Pastor Stan did a wonderful job of introducing us to the concept of what it looks like to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we used largely the the story of Andrew, one of the disciples. We don't know a lot about him, but it's very obvious this man started with, hey, here's Jesus. I'll see what he's all about. And it ended up being part of a multiplication movement that is in large part why we're here today. And the gospels abound of different stories that tell us of people at different parts of their journey and how they grew. Now, it doesn't line it up. Often we in churches want things to be point by point and really clean. And I want to ask you a question as we get started this morning. How often is life as clean as we would like it to be? Do everything always go according to your plans? No, they don't, right? All sorts of things can go sideways. You sit down in a meeting and somebody calls and said, you've got a sick kid, come pick up your kid from school. Or you had your whole life planned and the economy crashes and all of your retirement is now gone. Some of you can relate to that. Or you found the perfect mate only to find they found someone else. Or your kid that was going to be perfect has a learning disability and you're not sure how to handle that. And all these things we tend to try to solve ourselves and we come back to this question of what do we truly want out of life? And so what Pastor Stan and I felt like we should do as we were jumping into this message is we're going to do it in two parts. I'm going to tell you a story. 
And it's based on John chapter 4. But it's, it's a paraphrase. It's not word for word exactly what the scriptures say. So keep that in mind. I'm reading bits and pieces. And I'm going to pull out chunks of what we see out of John chapters four, chapter 4, verses 1 through 29. But instead of just reading it straight out, I'm going to tell you a story. And I'm going to highlight, look at what was happening as Jesus did one of the most miraculous things he could do. He sat down with a Samaritan woman at a well. Before we get to that place, we need to understand just how revolutionary it was that Jesus was, one, in Samaria as a Jew, and two, that he would sit down and chat with a woman at that particular well that Jacob had built long before. And so, as uh, another way to remind you that you have access to Right Now Media, we're going to show you a video from Right Now Media that gives you a brief understanding of Samaria because Jesus uses Samaritans throughout his teaching, whether it's to talk about the good Samaritan or in a case like this, John highlights how Jesus sat down and talked to this person. There was something there that we today often forget, and that was a stigma really a racism against the people of Samaria that we need to understand and where it started and why a story like the one we're about to hear was so revolutionary. So focus your eyes on the screens and let's learn a little bit about Samaria. In the scriptures... The children of Israel reach a pinnacle of peace and prosperity under the reign of King Solomon. Unfortunately, this season is short-lived. Upon Solomon's death and his son Rehoboam's ascension to the throne, the kingdom largely revolts under Rehoboam's threat of a much harsher reign than that of his father. The kingdom split in two with ten of the tribes to the north becoming the kingdom of Israel and crowning Jeroboam their new king, while the tribes of Benjamin and Judah remained loyal to the house of David and King Rehoboam, creating the kingdom of Judah, or Judea, from whence the term Jew would come. In an attempt to destroy the centrality of worship in Jerusalem, King Jeroboam would begin a long-lasting spiritual mixture among the northern kingdom of Israel, establishing temples in Dan at the north of his kingdom and in Bethel in the south. This would lead the northern kingdom into idolatry for its nearly two-century existence. During the first 50 years, the northern kingdom of Israel would have six kings, and in about 885 BC, King Omri, would ascend to the throne. After purchasing the land from a man named Shimer, he would move the capital city from Terzah to Samaria, where he built a new capital that would grow to rival that of the size of Jerusalem. After Omri's death, his son Ahab became king and reigned from Samaria. The northern kingdom would war regularly with its neighbor Syria, and Samaria was assaulted by King Benadad in two attempts, but the city held, and Ahab prevailed. Ahab would marry a Phoenician princess named Jezebel, and the two would become infamous for their Baal worship, provoking God to send the prophet Elijah with the curse of famine in the land. 
Jezebel was intent on killing all the prophets of God, prompting a showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the prophet of God, on nearby Mount Carmel. Later, during the time of King Jehoram and the prophet Elisha, King Benadad made a third attempt to war with Samaria. Elisha was tracked to Dothan because he was giving intelligence prophetically to the king of Israel. The Arameans surrounded the city and Elisha asked God to open the eyes of his servant, revealing that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. God blinded the army and Elisha led them directly here into the capital city of Samaria, where they regained their sight and were fed and sent on their way, humiliated. Samaria has all the intrigue and history of any capital city, from assassinations to battles and changes in power. Eventually, after nearly two centuries of existence, the northern kingdom would fall to the Assyrians, and Samaria would be sacked. The people were carried away into exile, as the Assyrians resettled other conquered peoples into the land, creating an even more convoluted spiritual mixture between faith in the God of Israel and the customs of other foreign worship traditions. These people would eventually be known as Samaritans, before, during, and after the time of Jesus. Samaria is a beautiful region with a vast history that touches many eras in biblical history. And although the city is in ruins, its story is still very much alive. It's interesting as you listen to the, the story of Samaria, <clears throat> that it's one that's often repeated in human history. We're going to go our own way. And over time, the message that was steadfast to follow one God became, we're going to follow a variety of gods. The word we often use to that term is called syncretism, where we try to sync, much like you try to sync your phone over the cloud to make sure you've got all the right information. Well, we try to sink a bunch of religions into one and call it something pure that it's not. And as that happened, specifically in Samaria, those God-fearing Jews, as holy as they thought themselves to be, looked at the Samaritans as being impure, illegitimate syncretists. And that's the story we find ourselves when we get to John chapter 4. There is a stigma against a Samaritan. They are not welcomed by Jewish people. They are illegitimate. You can fill in worse words there if you'd like, and it wouldn't be so accurate, so inaccurate. But there's another thing going on that we start with. So when you get to verse 1 in John chapter 4, you find out that there's a competition brewing, and that competition uh, among the Pharisees is they're keeping track of whether Jesus or John are baptizing more people. Whose disciples? In fact, it's not even Jesus and John baptizing, but their disciples. Which one of them is baptizing more? In parentheses, if you really look at the text, who's the bigger threat that we need to be concerned with? Who do we need to watch out for? 
And John highlights that uh, as one man says there, the Pharisees are posting the score that Jesus was ahead and that more were turning to him and they were trying to turn he and John into rivals so as to illegitimize their message. And so Jesus was on his way back to Galilee. He was on his way to the hillside. We're even told in the scriptures that he's tired. Again, we understand that Jesus is fully human. He got tired. You're in the middle of a long weekend. Any of you tired today? I bet you many of you are. And Jesus understands that. I want us constantly to remember that Jesus understands our point of need. He understands what it's like to be tired. And in his tiredness, the best way to get to Galilee was to go through Samaria. Now, most Jews would not have done that. They would have walked around. Not Jesus. He came into Sichar. It was a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given it to his son, Joseph. And it's amazing. All of this that we consider long, long ago was still very much living history to the people of all parts of Israel. So the Jews, the Samaritans, they all cared deeply about these, th- this part of their history. And the well of Jacob uh, was still there. And Jesus, who's worn out, sits down at the well, and it was noon. So it's the middle of the day, and Jesus shows up. Underline that in your Bibles, however it was, however you see it that Jesus sat down at that well. And a woman, a Samaritan woman no less, comes to draw water. Jesus is present there. And he looks at her. And he has the audacity to say, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone away. He's by himself. He's maybe enjoying a moment of solitude, but more likely he's waiting for this woman. He knows she's coming. He makes himself available to someone that he knows there's a deeper need. Think about your workplace for a minute. How often do you know that there are people that might be struggling, that might have a need, if you would but just sit down with them and ask them what's going on in life, if even for a moment. Jesus made himself available. Verse 9, we we move on, and the woman's surprised that a Jew, a God-fearing Jew she is assuming, would make himself available and talk to her. She said, how come you're, you're asking me, a Samaritan woman? So there's two strikes again. Her. One, she's illegitimate because she's a Samaritan. Two, she's a woman, and Jewish men wouldn't have associated naturally in a setting like that. It would have been considered inappropriate. And so she's asking, why would you ask me for a drink? One guy says a, Jew, a Jewish man wouldn't be caught dead talking to a Samaritan woman. I think that's... That's a pretty good summary of it. And Jesus answers, as one writes, if you knew the generosity of God and you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. And I would give you water that's living. I would give you living, fresh water. I would give you what you long for in life. He's beginning to invest in this relationship. And he's beginning to show her what's truly important in life. You move on to verses 11 and 12. And the woman says roughly, Sir, you've got nothing to pull water from. How are you going to get any water out? And this well is deep. 
How are you going to get me this living water you're promising me? Are you better than Jacob? And remember, Jacob is way up the food chain. He is highly revered as one of the patriarchs, the founding fathers of the kingdom of God. And it was Jacob who dug this well and he drank for it. Are you saying you're better than him and you've got better water than him? She's challenging him. And Jesus doesn't turn it into a debate. We see no indication here that he's angry with her question. She's asking a legitimate question. If somebody comes up to you and says, I can give you living water, I'm thinking right now, just give me water, I'm thirsty. That's what I want. And so Jesus doesn't run away. He he says, everybody who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again implying that it's going to keep happening. You come to this while you drink, but you're going to keep getting thirsty over and over. But the water I'm offering, the living water, it never runs out. You'll never thirst again. It's like that spring water gushing from the fountains of endless life. That need that you can't even vocalize, that need that's deep within you, I'm telling you, I've got the answer to that need. I'm telling you, I've got the answer to what your heart longs for. So he's identifying and he's walking this woman through a journey. The woman says back then, give me this water so that I don't ever have to go thirsty and I never have to come to this well again. She's practical. I like this. She's thinking, sweet, Lugging water all over is hard work. I won't have to do it anymore if this guy gives me some eternal water source. And so she's excited, thinking that's what it is. Give me this water and I won't ever be thirsty again. And I'll never have to come back. And he says, go get your husband and then come back. But sir, I have no husband You're right in what you say. You have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're currently living with now isn't even your husband. You've spoken the truth as if she didn't already know that. Jesus is opening her eyes to the truth that he has set before her. But he does it in an honest but loving and gentle way. He doesn't beat her over the head with it. Again, we don't sense there's a condemnation in that you should be stoned. But there is an acknowledgement that you're not living the way you could be living. That this isn't the right way to live. And that there is a better way. He allows the conversation to continue rather than throwing that first stone. And so she responds, oh, you're a prophet then. Well, our ancestors worshiped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship. The the story, the archaeology, the background and history that we just learned, that we just saw there, that's hugely important because it was a question of if God is God, where is the place we can truly worship him? Jews were saying it's got to be Jerusalem. Uh, The Samaritans were saying, no, it can't be because we're not even allowed there. So where do we worship? And so there's this confusion among these, these warring groups. And Jesus gives her a bigger answer than she ever dreamt possible. Believe me, woman, one guy says, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. Right now you're guessing in the dark. 
right now, you know, as he says, you're, you're trying to figure it out as best you can without the full picture. But the time is coming, as is already clear to the Jews, that God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews. But that time is coming. In fact, it's come when what you've called it will not matter and where you worship will no longer matter. The NIV summarizes it well and I want to read it to make sure you see it clearly what he's saying to her because it changes everything. He's offering a salvation that she'd never heard before. And it's at the end of John It's at the end of this section of John. He says, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on the mountain or in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know. You worship in the dark. Like I said, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming. And then he has the audacity to say, It's now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For that's the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus has initiated a relationship, and the truth cuts to the heart. In other words, it's who you are and the way you live before God that matters in your worship to God. It's not what building you show up in. It's the condition of your heart and how that is expressed in how you live your life. And then the woman says, well, I don't know about that. I do know the Messiah is coming. I believe that. And when he comes, we'll get the whole story. And Jesus says, come and see. Chair one, I am he. I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. And so what happens is you jump down into verses 28 through 30. Well, the woman took the hint and she leaves as the disciples have come back. They're like, what's he doing talking to a Samaritan woman? There's a little bit of a conflict there. And in her confusion, she left her water pot. But she goes back into the village and what does she tell the people? Come and see who man, who, a man who knew all about the things I did, who knows me inside and out. You want to know a key to evangelism? It's relationship. Jesus took the time to talk with this woman, to know her at her point of need, and to invest in her. We don't know how long this conversation was. It was long enough for the disciples to leave and to come back and to go some distance. But listen to what she says next when she goes off. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they went out to see for themselves. She has sat down firmly in chair one and she tells other people, come see this guy that could just be the Messiah. In her life, the process of discipleship has begun. Who do we know that needs to come and see Jesus Christ? And how do we help them sit down in this chair, but not stay there? How do we help them investigate who Jesus is? Pastor Stan's going to come help us look at what it means for us to disciple someone in chair one. There are different ways to learn things, aren't there? Sometimes a story helps us, and we've had a story now of the woman at the well. Last week we had the story of Andrew. And what we find is Jesus is ministering to different people all throughout the Gospels. 
And in those, Jesus has intention with what he's doing. And so what we have come up with is we're using the term four-chair discipling to help understand what we want to be about here in the church. So let me tell you just a little bit um, about the four-chair discipling idea. First of all, it is simply four stages that a person goes through as they walk with Jesus as a disciple. Now, uh, just to have a little humor here, sometimes we think that these chairs are the chairs that the actual 12 disciples of Jesus sat in. We would then need 12 chair discipling. (laughs) Because the idea is simply that we start in chair one, and we'll find that then we go through the cross of Jesus Christ to chair two, and on to chair three, and on to chair four. And so these are simply four stages of discipling. One thing that you will grasp from the Scripture is that it is expected that we move through the chairs. None of these are nice, soft, comfy chairs. In America, we have the Lazy Boy brand that you sit down in and you lay back in and you just get comfy. God's got this nice chair for me in chair two, and I'm staying. No, God wants us to get up, uh, do what needs done while we're seated in chair two, and then move on to chair three and move on to chair four. Because there are some very specific things that we can gather from Scripture that we're to do in each chair. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to be talking about those. Today, we're primarily going to focus on chair one. Something else that you will find is if you are in chair two or higher, you have responsibilities towards the people in the lower chairs. God expects us, once we've been given a gift, to use that gift for him. And so we want to talk about chair one, simply asking Who's seated in chair one? Who is there? Well, first of all, what you need to realize is that people in chair one are spiritually lost. They do not know Jesus yet. But the the thing that they have is a curiosity. This woman was curious as to who Jesus was. Last week we talked about Andrew. He wanted to know where Jesus was staying. And Jesus says to chair one people, come and see. In one way or another, come and see who Jesus is. And something just to to clear up, um, can can there be chairs before chair one? Yes, there can. The, the, the thing that we're looking at with chair one people is that they have a curiosity and interest. They're asking questions about God. Because there are people who are not even in that chair yet. There are people who are hostile towards God. They're angry. They may have had something where, where they've just turned their back on God. They may say there is no God. They're, they're, they're not interested. Or they may be directed spiritually in ways other than towards the God of our Bible. And so it is something I, I want to just share with you. If you have a friend that's in one of these chairs before chair one, be praying that you can move them one step closer um, to Jesus. And uh, sometimes that takes a, a bit of time. But people in chair one 
are spiritually lost, but they are curious, they're questioning, they're interested, but they're just not yet convinced. And so, what does a chair one person need? What's going on in their life that they need? I would say one of the first things is, is what Pastor Mike talked about is a relationship. Now, ultimately, we'd like them to have a relationship with God, but they probably need a relationship with you first. They need some friends who already know Jesus. They need some friends that can take them to, to Jesus. And so that's a great opportunity that we have to be friends of people who don't know Jesus yet. The second thing that they need is they need answers. They're asking questions. They don't have the puzzle pieces in place. And, and like we were told this fall, we don't have to have all the puzzle pieces in place to see the picture. But they need some questions answered. They have things in their mind. They may be uh, misconceptions or just something that they don't know. And you don't necessarily need to have all the answers. You just need to be willing to explore it with them. Help them find the answers from the Bible. Something else that the chair one people need is they need respect and sometimes they need some space. You need to be a genuine friend with them, um, not just a friend because they're some kind of project. They definitely need the gospel presented to them. And sometimes, as you see how Jesus did it here in John chapter 4, the best way to do that is to ask questions or get them to ask questions. Because the way to present the gospel when someone's interested is when you're answering their question. And so you walk through life with them. Something else I would challenge you to do is each one of us who is in chair two, three, or four, you should be able to explain the gospel to somebody from the Bible. It's in the Bible. And how do you know that somebody knows the gospel from the Bible? And so, most of all, a chair one person needs the gospel and needs to respond to who Jesus is. So, uh, we want to look a little bit, uh, when we're talking about chair one, there are responsibilities that we have if you're in chair two, three, or four. Um, first of all, develop friendships. Develop friendships with people who are in chair one and uh, genuine friendships. Um, enter Let's see, where am I? Yes. Um, enter their world. Um, help chair one people find answers. It's basically the inverse of what a chair one person needs. They need the gospel presented. And they need to walk, we need to walk with someone who enters chair two. I'm fascinated by the story of the woman at the well. Do you see what happens at the end? I don't know how long Jesus was planning on being in Samaria, but it seems like he was going to go right through to Galilee. And he spends two extra days in Samaria. When, someone, when we have a friend who comes to Christ, we have the privilege of walking with them for those, well, it might be more than two days. Two weeks, two months, whatever opportunity you have, you have that privilege to do it. So, what did Jesus do? He entered her world. He asked her questions. He spoke truth into the situation. And he focused on the main message. He didn't get sidetracked with 
with some of the, the uh, um, sidetracks that, that came up there. And a word that Spellcheck didn't seem to like, he presented his Messiahship. That word's not in Spellcheck. But he said, I am the Messiah. Jesus is the one that we need to follow. And so Jesus said, I am he. I am the one you were looking for. And then he spent that extra time with her in Samaria. So I want to just uh, reflect. Hopefully that helped you get, get your blanks filled in on your paper. We have a few more to get to. But I want to just stop and kind of ask a question. How are we doing with our own children and teenagers that are here as a part of AIC? Because one of the things that we need to realize is that anyone, including the children and teenagers that we have here in AIC, who don't know Jesus Christ yet, are separated from God. They don't know who He is. They are in chair one. And we have the unique opportunity of ministering to these people. They come, you know, you know, what are some of those opportunities? These people come, these children, the teenagers that are here as a part of AIC, come from families who are open to the gospel. We don't need to knock on doors and have people that are angry at us and we don't want your children coming to that place. These are coming from families who love God. And so we should pray for that opportunity to minister to this special group of chair one people. Now, children and teenagers can be in chair two, three, even, even in, into four. Um, but, um, um, you know, we need to share the gospel with them early and hope that, pray that they will respond in the formative years of their life. I hear the stories, and it's, it's, it's amazing to hear stories of people who are adults and come to Christ. But someone who's a child and grows up in the church can hear the stories of the gospel and have it built into their life early on. But I want to ask the question, are we expecting that children can be in chair two and grow and mature? Can they move to chair three, or is it okay for them to just stay in chair two? One of the questions that I, I get to work with um, Doug Wallace, our children, our youth director, and, and Melissa Rose, our children's director, and one of the questions I ask them is, if a child spends their whole life in AIC for the first 11 years of their life, what should they look like spiritually by the time they leave? How can we partner with families to help children and teenagers become mature believers in Christ? What would be some of the things that you would look for? Is it reasonable to expect that an older child or teenager could have their own devotions time? Could they be reading God's Word? Could they be memorizing Scripture? Could they be starting to understand and live out the truth of the gospel? I believe they can. And I believe that as Christian, as a church and as Christian parents, we should be expecting it. 
And so I would encourage us to take this special group of Chair 1 to Chair 2 people to help them to grow as disciples, not say that it's okay to just stay in the comfy chair of the beginning of Chair 2. How do we do that? Start instilling the lifestyle where Jesus is number one. The expectation that we grow. The expectation that we develop spiritually in our lives. And so the children, sometimes it's, it's easier because when you have new believers in children, they're all in a confined, smaller age group. It's interesting having a new believers class with adults. We could have somebody that's 18 years old, or we could have somebody that's 88 years old in that class. And sometimes it's very different in teaching that. So let's take the opportunities that we have in working with our own children and teens. Let's have the expectation. And let's not subtly communicate the idea that it's okay to put God and the church on the back seat. You know, when there's an opportunity and we say, well, we need to decide if we're going to go here or there. And consistently, God and the church gets, we'll push that one off to the side. So that's just a little bit about uh, uh, children, teenagers, chair one, chair two, um, where we're going with that. I hope that we can start thinking in terms of the four chairs because it helps us understand where we are and it helps us to understand how to minister to other people. We come to Jesus curious in chair one, and we need to go through the cross to get to chair two and beyond. It's a simple illustration, but I'd like to say it's not simplistic. Why? Because it really takes a moment to explain and to get started in this model but it takes a lifetime to mature and develop in Christ. We should each be a disciple. Jesus calls us to be a disciple, a growing disciple, one who moves through the stages and the de development through all four stages. Grow to your fullest in each chair that you're in. And in the process, be involved in making disciples. God calls us to be more than just a disciple because a disciple is a disciple maker. So we want to look at this. Uh, we're going to look at different stories uh, of individuals. Next week is Zacchaeus, and we're going to move on to chair two next week. So um, let, I'll close in prayer here and uh, then invite the worship team to come back up. Dear God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that Jesus modeled for us what it means to be a disciple and a disciple maker. He worked with this woman. He spent time with him, with her. Spent a few days with her, helping her to get started as a new believer in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to do the same. May we be a church where we are faithful disciples and we are faithfully making disciples. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.